Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so that you can create products your customers love. Today, we're talking about faster problem solving to speed innovation by using a three-part framework, including exploration, alignment, and decision-making. Our guest is Atif Rafiq. He invented a system for problem solving based on his 25-year career spanning Silicon Valley and the Fortune 500. His ideas proved so impactful as a competitive advantage that they sped his rise at Amazon and later to C-suite positions he held at companies, including McDonald's as their first digital officer, not just all about hamburgers, and as well at Volvo and MGM Resorts. He has written a book called Decision Sprint, The New Way to Innovate into the Unknown and Move from Strategy to Action, which are just magic words for me. So it certainly caught my attention when I saw this title to innovate into the unknown. He joins us to share some details of how this works. Also, if you do want a written summary of anything you're here, that's a great way to share this episode with your colleagues, as well as a one-page action guide, which can also be used as a discussion guide if you want to talk about these topics with your colleagues. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 452. This episode is sponsored. It's made possible by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. That's the RPM Experience which helps product VPs and leaders get their product managers and everyone else that's contributing to product to increase performance, working in alignment to reach your North Star objectives. It works best for new teams or established teams that are facing a big challenge. Teams learn the seven essential product knowledge areas and they build trust and collaboration in the process. It's unlike any other training, but is an experience together as we learn together. See how it's unique by going to productmasterynow.com RPM. Atif, thanks so much for joining us today. Chad, it's a pleasure to be with you. So we happen to be on video. Most people won't be able to see this, but you do have some books behind you there, the printed book, Decision Sprint. But let's just jump straight in and tell us why we need a decision sprint. There are some reasons. First of all, today we're in an era of economic austerity. So the bar for innovation has been raised in most organizations. And what this means is that we need a way of innovating that's more purposeful. So that, I think, is a huge driver for things. To get your ideas, it's one thing to have a promising idea, another thing to get the buy-in for it and unlock some action so you can bring it to customers. And every CEO you hear from in tech and outside tech is talking about sharper, sharpening the pencil a little bit and wanting to be more confident about the things that they're supporting. So if you're product manager or product owner, and you have promising ideas, the bar has been raised. And so that's one reason why what I'm talking about is important in this day and age, especially. Yeah, I think there's always resource constraints, right? Even our medium-large organizations, we can't think of them as being resource-rich because every company I talk to and everyone working on projects always says we have too many projects for the actual people we have. But there are these times, which we have now, of some tightening going on. And unfortunately, innovation is one of those things that might be kind of first dismissed in organizations, right? We don't have time or money for this right now. We need to put our focus on operations. That tends to be a mistake. And we did see that in 2008. There was some good research written about that. A decision sprint sounds like a tool to help us know where to focus and maybe provide some defense for taking those actions. Yeah. And actually, more broadly, even if the times were a little brighter, which, of course, at some point they will be. Yep, we hope so. We have this age-old problem of how do we get the element to dance? How do we get the organization to to agree to a good idea? Because things like alignment and getting stakeholders to see things and agree to things, creating shared understanding, those are all 
themes that a good product manager seek to solve for, right? And rather than leaving it to personalities, which is you just happen to be an artist as a product manager, you know how to orchestrate that, or maybe you have a very constructive environment. We need a methodology so that we can objectively take good ideas forward. And where I'm focused on is the is the idea that to solve big problems or to innovate, it's got to be, we've got to create a way of creating, like understanding that is something that is shared so that it's not just sort of the creative folks who are, see it and it's everybody it takes to pull it off, that we're able to be inclusive around creating shared understanding for everybody who needs to be involved in pulling the big idea off. And how do we do that? I think there is a way to do that. But today it's very choppy. There are a lot of pitfalls and there are a lot of fits and starts in initiatives. So that's another big meta reason why I put this work out there. It's not just for tough economic times, but I feel it's an age old problem that we need to cross over to the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Creating that shared understanding, trying to get some momentum in the organization to move forward. That's something we've agreed to together. Can you take us through the components of a decision sprint? We'll kind of get the big picture out and then we'll drill in a little bit more. Sure. The interesting thing is that it actually starts with questions. And so in in my time in organizations, I found that the most effective initiatives were one where we didn't shy away from questions. We actually took them head on and we spent time essentially canvassing the key unknowns and creating effectively a good question list. And Decision Sprint helps you do that. You can, uh, of course, have a kickoff meeting and say, hey, what are the key questions we need to get our head around? And that's one way to do it. But I think you could be a little bit more methodical about it. So even something like independently sourcing questions from your working team and giving them two days to do it, and maybe sharing those, like I said, independently, is actually really powerful. The reason why it's powerful One is because you make it a deliberate step in the process so that questions don't just come up organically over a few weeks. That's actually potentially detrimental because if you have a blind spot that comes up later, then you begin to integrate some of your discovery work into some hypothesis or some recommendation. It can can be like a monkey wrench. So instead, if you look at sourcing questions as One of the very early steps, that's very powerful, number one. And then doing it independently, you tend to get, obviously, more diverse set of questions that are also relevant, and you have fewer blind spots. I think that's very powerful. So in the methodology I'm offering, some of the first few steps are, one, to define the problem statement. Because if, if people have a different interpretation of that, you'll only realize that a month down the line, that's problematic and then to actually start sourcing the unknowns behind that problem statement in the form of questions. And I look at getting a great question list as essentially getting the first space. If you've got that, then you've really done a good job of essentially building an exploration or you have the basis of an exploration. So the first overall phase of Decision Sprint, which has three phases, is building and running an exploration where questions are the heart of that. So we start with exploration. This is where the defining the problem statement comes from. So we're trying to frame the problem correctly. I'm a big fan of stepping back from the first problem that kind of emerged because that might not be the thing we actually need to solve. It might be a symptom or something, not a core issue. 
So we're framing that right, understanding the real problem statement and coming up with a good list of questions. I don't know if there's like the divergent broadening process, like we're going to go for the really wide net. What are all the questions? What are the assumptions we're making right now? What what do we not know? And then do we focus down on the ones we really need to pursue? These are the questions we must know the answers to before we can move forward next. Yeah, the way I look at questions, and just a quick back up, just very quickly on the problem statement, because you said it so well, is that the initial understanding of the problem is usually a little bit murky, right? And so we have a problem, but no, it's not a problem statement. Let's say you're Netflix, you have a problem with password sharing. That's not the problem statement. <laughs> the problem statement is probably something more, how do we do the right thing for the customer while making sure that we minimize the abuse of this the sharing of passwords, right? So you're trying to balance two things. A good problem statement usually embeds some trade-offs and so on and so forth. So it's not that we have a problem. Of course, we have a problem or an opportunity, but a problem statement is quite some something a little bit more nuanced where the answer is not obvious, right? That's why teams spend weeks and months collaborating to get to the point where they could confidently recommend things and unlock action in their company. So you're so right about crafting a problem statement takes a minute and there are ways to do that. But if you have a problem statement you're and you have a working team with the right competencies, and what I mean by that is the right kind of contributions you're going to need, you're really in probably a little bit ahead of most teams <laughs> because even that is seems elusive in some organizations. Um, now, what do you do with this team is essentially before rushing ahead to opinions and judgment and you know, what's the right what's the right answer and recommendation, I'm recommending that teams spend time building an exploration, which doesn't have to take a long time, right? It can be just a matter of a few days. And to come back to your question, if I independently ask people to make a great question list and asynchronously they their suggestions, then you begin to see, yeah, you begin to see the patterns and the overlap. And it's quite surprising. It's actually surprising in a good way where you're like, oh, I'm glad we did this independently because I wouldn't have thought of this subject matter this person's raising or this particular way of looking at it. I was just really in my rabbit hole because that's often what happens with ideas. It's like we think very deeply about one or two considerations, but we miss others. And that's the value of this divergent thinking. But yeah, if once you pull together a good question, a question list, you'll probably find some patterns, some overlaps and duplication. That's okay. But you scrub that question list what I would do next is then share that with sponsors. I'm taking a short break from the interview to tell you about my favorite annual conference for product managers and leaders. It is the PDMA Inspire Innovation Conference. PDMA, the Product Development and Management Association, has been researching, developing, and curating the product management body of knowledge and innovation body of knowledge for us since 1976. That's about 50 years of product knowledge and expertise that I bet you're unfamiliar with. I certainly am not familiar with all of it, and I love learning more. This is where people new to product work go to meet those with deep experience, and it's also where those of us with deeper experience go to network. This year, I'll be attending sessions, networking, and interviewing several of the speakers that are discussing topics on product innovation processes, customer insights, portfolio management, and much more. It's held September 16th to 19th in New Orleans, so just coming up in a few weeks, you can check it out now by going to pdma.org. 
And when you come to the conference, please introduce yourself as I love to meet listeners. I will be spending some of my time in what they call the Innovation Cafe. So when you come, look for the Innovation Cafe. That's where I'll be interviewing speakers. And it's a great conference. Again, check out pdma.org to find out more. Hope to see you there. Can I follow up on one before we get yeah. to the next, just something you mentioned about the question list. So I think before when we talked about coming up with this question list, some of us may have thought, okay, we're going to get together on a virtual meeting or a conference room. The team's going to meet and we're just going to bang out the things that we don't know about this. But it sounded like you're emphasizing individual time in that as well, because that may help us reflect more deeply and have different perspectives that we can then bring together and collaborate on how those you know, questions might relate to each other. A hundred percent. I'm a big believer in some things you do asynchronously and some things you do, you convene the team to, to sort through them. And so let's walk through examples of both. And when it comes to suggesting questions, if you're, if you're sitting with an important problem statement for even 48 hours, the spark in your mind is going to go off at random times, right? It could be when you're having cereal in the morning. It's not necessarily going to be when you're in the meeting with three other people. And so People can make a quick jot that down, right? And then they know that they've got two days to share their question list. That to me is more powerful. It's a good time to me once, let's say, a project manager and admin has been able to collect everything that was submitted independently and scrub it and say, this is what we've got, which is actually fun to look at that, to say, here's the collective intelligence of our team. I actually think that builds a lot of team positive team dynamics because you see why you have a team to begin with and you see the power of a team. It's cool. But yes, I'm suggesting that when you're suggesting questions, I think you can do that async. I think when you review them, you can look at them as a group for a few reasons, but one of which is you now need to assign those questions to different people to either answer or review, which is part of what I call running an exploration. Okay. Uh, but big picture, by the way, before you even dole out the questions or dish out the questions for people to tackle, right? You can actually share the raw question, the question list with sponsors, which I think is a great step too, because you always have to, sponsors are always curious, how are we doing? You're solving this problem for Netflix around password sharing. I don't want to wait a month for the big meeting with the presentation. You're like, where are we? And so when you socialize a question list, you actually have a way to signal, hey, we're making progress. And then also when sponsors look at that and say, hey, you might also want to think about X or, hey, this question looks list looks great. You actually be, begin to build confidence as part of unlocking support and action. Are the sponsors in this example key stakeholders or are they specifically the people you know paying for this initiative? Yeah, I mean, they're t- let's say you're Netflix, you have the working team around password solve sharing. You'll probably have a sponsor group that consists of your commercial leader, you know, who cares about the bottom line, maybe your legal person who cares about making sure you don't do anything wrong in terms of privacy yep. and whatnot. And maybe you'll have a product or tech leader trying to make sure it's feasible and can be delivered, right? So those are, but they're not in the day-to-day as much there. But sponsors are, of course, ultimately accountable for accountable for things. So it's important that they understand they have one, the ability to contribute without being micromanagement, which is very important to me, very important principle, especially as you get away from tech into more traditional companies. It's, you can't 
we want to avoid the tendency for micromanagement. So we need some form of involvement. And the best form of involvement, an early form of involvement, is calibrating a question list. That's a way to <clears throat> basically allow for contribution, but let, uh, giving teams space to do their best work. I like that. Involvement without micromanaging. Okay, so exploration is coming up with a clear problem statement about the actual challenge. Usually some dichotomy between two priorities, maybe, or more. We're doing the exploring of all the questions, the things that we don't know yet, the questions that we should be asking, taking it maybe two or three days to do that, integrating that information, providing that to key stakeholders to get their perspective as well. At this point, have we gotten through exploration? We've built an exploration because we have canvassed the unknowns and the knowns, and that's really all we're accountable for. If there are unknown unknowns, that's beyond the remit, right? Because you cannot expect that out of human beings. We'll just have to deal with that later. But yeah, once you've canvassed the knowns and unknowns and you've said, these are the important considerations and these are the underlying questions we need to get to the bottom of, you then run the exploration, which is about essentially developing this FAQ of sort, giving signing people to answer questions and others to review them. And when you do that, and that can, might take a different amount of time depending on where you are in the initiative, are you looking for some high-level thing or say something much more detailed, that would actually complete the process of running the exploration is having completed answers so that you have sort of a high-quality base of information to to then move on to additional things that we need to do because we're not just with that alone we're not going to be ready to get a yes or a buy-in but we have a high quality fact base or discovery process to be able to then move on to do things like form recommendations so now are we moving into alignment is that our next key component of the designs of the decision sprint yeah so decision sprint has these three phases exploration alignment and decision making and the second phase is as you said alignment now, alignment is sounds, well, of course, you have to align, but it's some companies, they get it wrong. They have this, I put this phrase in the book where I say exploration before alignment. And the reason I used to preach that in my roles is because I often found there was alignment before exploration, where basically there was a rush to opinion or judgment. And we hear that all the time in companies. We've tried this before. It hasn't worked. This will never work. There's skepticism or maybe there's too much optimism. It's just all over the place, right? So there's always a lot of judgment that's uh, essentially preceding the team, giving teams the space to actually, you know, look into it, you know? And so uh, for me, a big phrase, which I put in the book is exploration before alignment. So alignment isn't necessarily a bad thing or a bad word. I... So in some experiences in my past, it was a bad word because it meant we're not going to do the exploration. We're just going to decide that this is not a good idea and we're going to shut it down. And we don't like that as creative product managers. But alignment has a, is important because in the end, most product ideas and especially meaningful ideas are cannot be done by one quarter of a company. It does take contribution and planning and execution by multiple parts of the organization. So if we can't create shared understanding of this is definitely the direction we need to go down and we can create, people can understand why, that's going to a lot more confident confidence in taking it forward. So alignment, that phase is really about creating the breadcrumb between what was explored 
and what's being recommended. And essentially, the conclusions that we're drawing, we explored this topic of password sharing on Netflix or creating a rewards program for Uber or at Volvo, changing, changing our interiors to vegan leather, which is something I write about in the book. These are may all sound like important ideas or good ideas, but when you can have a high quality fact base and reasoning and you have canvassed that problem in the right way, you're going to draw the right conclusion. You're going to put a few conclusions on the table and that's where you want to get the head nods going. And in order to get those head nods going around the table, people have to understand how did you arrive at these conclusions? The exploration allows you to do that. Is there a tool in there in alignment? I think I heard you just say, use the word canvas, and I wasn't sure if that was a specific tool or not, but how you're representing that shared understanding and collaborating with, this is what we think we know, what's your perspective adding to that? I, there's definitely a methodology from a software tool perspective. I have started a company called Ritual, which does a lot of these, provides a lot of these workflows. But methodology-wise, what I'm a fan of is, for example, if you... Let's say you, you gave people the same FAQs and also independently you asked them to take those FAQs and you ask them what conclusions would you draw based on this. That gets very interesting because now you have four, let's say you have four people working off the same content and they're drawing conclusions and now you aggregate those conclusions. You get very interesting insights. I think the kind of insights you get are generally, oh, people agree on the big high-level conclusion, number one. But conclusions are often very layered. I'm wearing an Amazon t-shirt right now, (laughs) and I write about this example in the book where I'm at Amazon and I'm leading a business unit around self-publishing, and there is an idea, a raw idea around creating an exclusivity program with the authors to publish only with Amazon, then they get rewarded a lot more than if they were working with every channel. And by the way, it's a program that was a smashing success, but in the beginning, we didn't even know if it was an idea worth pursuing. What When you do an exploration around something like that, you come up with a lot of different conclusions ranging from authors. It would be something that's really appealing to authors, but then you also come up with conclusions around your how you're going to force this exclusivity and how Amazon especially needs to be very careful and not enforce like with a big stick, but with a very light stick, if anything. And so what I'm saying is that when you have an idea and you begin to explore it and to discover around it, when you draw conclusions based on that exploration and discovery, your conclusions are going to be very layered. Some of them are going to, they're going to be all very relevant to the program you're eventually going to launch. But it's not that you're concluding one thing. Yes, no, this is a good idea. Don't do it, do it. That's not the conclusion I'm talking about. I'm talking about, yeah, authors are going to love this. Be, don't make a big PR deal about it because you're Amazon. You don't want to seem like David Burt's Goliath. C, if you're going to enforce, you're going to need to have a lot of automation because you're going to have a lot of people interested and you're not going to be able to put human bodies monitoring whether these exclusivities are being honored. And the internet is very big, by the way. So what I'm trying to say is that conclusions are often very layered. And you want to be able to bring out the full texture of the conclusions that people draw, because all of them are important to to know and build into your 
your plan. Okay. So we have exploration, alignment, which is creating the shared understanding. And it sounds like drawing in a little bit more, pointing out these conclusions, which are based on that initial FAQ, the questions we have about the idea and what we've learned and answers to that. This must take us into decision-making now because we have to decide what we're going to do with where we are now. Are we moving forward or not? I, I like your example of the Amazon author program. Yeah, you know, it, that's right. And decision-making itself is about the necessary actions. So now it's not just about the recommendation. Oh, let's do this. Let's enforce very carefully. Let's be, let's reward authors substantially because it'll still be great for us because we'll make money in a lot of other ways where people, we have three ways to make money. People will become prime members because this thing is going to benefit that. There's a lot of ways in which Amazon creates value other than directly. Okay. That's great. But those are recommendations. Decision-making is more about very specific actions, which is build and launch a new team to scale 10,000 books a week being published, start to build an automation tool, for example, or so it's about very concrete actions. And the beauty of this is two things. One is this is what feeds your execution plan. So now you're getting to your actual plan. And notice how we didn't jump ahead to creating a plan for the idea. We went through some things before that, but that's one beauty of it is it automatically populates your execution plan. The second beauty of it is you've created hopefully the red thread between where you started and where you arrived. And that's very important because um, decision-making just goes a lot faster when people see, oh, this is what we explored. This is the conclusions we drew from that exploration. And these are the necessary actions. Now here's the plan that you're asking me to sign up for. Timing, cost, resource. That is the red thread. When you have the red thread across that, it just goes a whole lot faster. And you have non-meeting meetings where people are like, I understand. <laughs> and often when they understand, they will, they will just ask you, how can I help? Take some of the friction and tension out of the process and just reminding people maybe about the original problem that we, path we went down in the first place to understand the problem and having that context and what the vision is now, putting that plan together just makes things a little more logical for a lot of people. Okay. Anything else about decision-making we should touch on? Yeah. In the end, the key point is really this, is that the decision point is not really where decision-making happens. It's much further upstream. And so that's where I, that's why I wrote the book. And that's where I'd specialize in companies as somebody who was able to move big new things along very quickly to impact, right? And people always wonder, okay, what is it about the way you do things where, you know, you're able to increase the metabolism of these companies quite a bit. And I didn't know the answer until I stepped back and realized that I do invest in the upstream process. That's what I call it in my book, where it's not about the decision point. It's going all the way upstream to what are we trying to solve for? And then this method, something like this methodology, I didn't have this methodology because I built it organically. I was doing it, but now I offer it as my gift to the world in the book. But basically these steps of exploration, alignment, and decision-making leading up to a decision point, if you can orchestrate that, then, then yeah, you do increase the chances that promising ideas actually see daylight and can make impact. 
If I may, I want to take a slight tangent just for a couple of minutes, and then we'll wrap up. Everyone knows I'm going to ask you for an innovation quote here in just a moment. But you just said something really important that I think relates to many of us, that we do activities and we don't necessarily recognize how those activities actually are resulting in the change that we're making until we maybe we step back and reflect. And there's pivots that happen along the way. Slack that I'm sure listeners are well aware of, that start out as Slack, that was a team building a game that was doing activity of communicating with each other. And that was pulled out as the product. In your case, in the form of this book, you have pulled out from your experience a, a product, right, which is this, this design process for decision-making. Can you just tell us a little bit how that came about, that you, you stepped back and thought, hey, there's something valuable here that I need to make available to others? Yeah, I love this question because essentially I wrote a cultural fault line for 10 years where I transitioned from Amazon which is really about, it's a hyper-learning environment where the company is not shy to enter new spaces, stating the obvious there, and not know a lot about it at the beginning. But the focus of everybody's energy is really how quickly can we learn what we need to learn to really kill it and win. And so there's like a learning culture and there's not a fear of having to go learn a bunch of things and think them through and put together this puzzle to to try and win. and. That's why they have a higher hit rate. They have a higher hit rate than Google. They have a higher hit rate than Facebook of being outside their core and <clears throat> getting into new areas. And that's for a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons is that they've been able to scale this culture of problem solving and learning. <clears throat> now, so I'm coming from that environment into being the first chief digital officer actually in the history of the Fortune 500 as the role I created at McDonald's and then being its companies like Volvo, which has been around 100 years, right? It was just not an insignificant amount of time. And then being president at MGM Resorts. So I'm coming into companies that minimum been around 60 years. So I'm in a cultural fault line because innovation is something that is is not really in the core DNA of the organizations at that point in their, in their life cycle, right? But they badly need it because the core is just not producing, is producing incremental results year over year. So I'm trying to bring in Amazon's way of working and that didn't really work precisely, right? Because I couldn't ask people to start doing things that Amazon does, write narratives. They didn't understand it and it wasn't going to work. <clears throat> but what I found and over time is that, you know, that to increase, tackle new spaces and get into new territory and get organizations comfortable with unknowns, there is a way to do that. And we have to cross this bridge because we have to be comfortable with the unknowns in order to solve for big ideas and get to action. And we have to make it something that's not scary and just trust me, blank check experimentation. Oh, you've hired some great people from outside and just write big checks and give them the space. That's not going to work either. So I was writing this cultural fault line where I had to teach companies that have been around a while to get comfortable with unknown. So I needed a better way than just, just trust me. And so I needed to build ways in which to have people question a bright idea at the beginning, but not be put off by it, but look at that as input and look at that as questioning the idea, but contributing an important question that needs to be answered somewhere along the way. So rather than fight it, to really turn it on its head. And that's my origin story of getting traditional companies to embrace, to become much more open to new ideas 
And rather than having this friction between, oh, the creative people get it and the or people have been around a while don't get it, right? I, I don't believe in that. I just actually tried to make it a neutral objective process where I don't care if you're one of the cool kids from Silicon Valley or you've been in a company veteran for 25 years, everybody's input is going to be channeled into some objective flow, workflow, essentially. And the content will speak for itself. That's where I was forced to come up with something like this. And I think it's, I think it's the right way to do things overall in most companies. Fantastic. I'm so glad I asked because I like that origin story of being responsible for roles in these more traditional companies, trying to bring in that maybe some Amazon thinking to help them be more innovative, finding out that what works for Amazon might not necessarily work the same way in the culture of that established company. And what can we do to really get them to still be thinking differently and embracing questions and doing exploration? That's great. So that makes a lot of sense and good way to bring in some new techniques to establish companies. As I did mention, we do like innovation quotes. What did you bring us and what does that one mean to you? Socrates has said, I cannot teach anybody anything. I can only make them think. And I take this to mean, of course, I mean, of course, you can teach someone something functional, right? That's highly documented, some SOP, something deeply operational. Of course, you can teach people that. But when you're a leader and you're a knowledge worker, I look at knowledge work as essentially trying to help people think together. Surprise, this quote really is would lead you to be the kind of person who asks a lot of questions and is very comfortable providing questions and receiving questions and creating an environment where questions are really at the center of how you solve problems. And the reason for that is a question, when expressed neutrally, does get people to think. In fact, when done in a group, it gets people to it gets people towards, it unlocks the collective intelligence of the organization because people begin to think together and they begin to solve like puzzles together. And that's really what we need in great teamwork and great or in high performance organizations is to unlock the collective intelligence and questions are really the kind of the starting point for that. So getting people to think if someone were to say, what was it like to work with this person, person X? And they were to say, they really helped me think deeper, reflect deeper, think things through. Then that's a huge praise, right? Because you've helped the organization probably just be in a much stronger position on the decisions that they're taking. Excellent. Thank you for sharing the quote with us. And thank you very much for the summary information on decision sprint and those three big components of exploration alignment and the decision making. I also think I got great value out of your process and just stepping back in your career. Really valuable. How can people find out more about the work you're doing? And I assume Decision Sprint is available at common booksellers, including Amazon, of course. <laughs> yeah. Any bookseller is, uh, is fine by me. So Decision Sprint, I'm happy to share, is now a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Congratulations. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Decisionsprint.com is my website where you can find the book, get a preview, and even find your podcast chat when it's when it's up there. So that's that's one thing. 
Also on Decision Spring, you'll find my software company, Ritual, which essentially brings these workflows to life. And it's a SaaS product any team can grab. That's available for people, for, especially for product managers and project managers. So those are the main ways to reach me. And I'm always available on LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, I have a newsletter. It happens to be one of their top 50 newsletters. It's called Rewire. So if you punch that in there, I put out a monthly newsletter. And I'd love to hear from people with their ideas and comments. Fantastic. We'll make sure the links to those resources are in the show notes. Atif, really appreciate the information and that your experience and sharing all your wealth of experience through your career with us, this bite-sized way of getting your hands around decision sprints. Thank you very much. Oh, you're most welcome, Chad. I really appreciate and enjoyed our conversation. And listeners, thank you so much for being here as well. You'll find the resources, the one-page action guide, and the full summary of everything we just discussed, including links at productmasterynow.com slash 452. The Product Mastery Now community is going to continue on talking with for just a little bit more and enjoy this discussion. If you want to find out more about that community, go to productmasterynow.com slash community. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.